Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. All right, welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, episode one. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. What's up, Ryan? How's it going, buddy? Good, man. Good. Good to talk to you. How's it going this week? Uh, it's going good, man. Going good. Uh, before we jump in, Ryan, we have a a job out of Houston, a mechanical integrity uh, manager. Uh, if you want to find out more information about that job, go to globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. Again, that is globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. Uh, there you'll find a list of other jobs that are also available. Uh, we have some breaking news this morning, Ryan, from uh, Fuel Fix. There's a 730-mile epic Permian Corpse Corpus Pipeline in the works. Um, Ryan Drusen uh, with Fuel Fix just released this yesterday. Uh, Ryan, did you have a chance to take a look at that? Yeah, I did, and, and you know, I kind of I kind of chuckled when I learned how they got the name Epic. It stands for Eagleford Permian uh, Inglesdale uh, Ingleside and Corpus, and so it's kind of you know put those together to come up with Epic Pipeline. <laughs> you know, wow. seven hundred and thirty miles is a, is a massive project, and just you know, for people out there listening, uh, maybe on the vendor side of things, a couple things to note here is they they're saying that they've already acquired ten percent of the right of way, so you're looking at right of way and surveying and probably early permitting going on in the process. Um, but for our, our companies who provide contractor services and inspection and stuff like that, there's probably still a good opportunity to get on. Now, if you don't have a job, um, then you you know now's the time to start tracking down these companies who are doing the surveying, who are doing the right of acquisition, and say, you know, looking for them to add staff as this project. You know, a project of this size, Josh, as you know, is going to go through phases. It's going to ramp up. It's going to slow down. It's going to ramp up. It's going right. to slow down as they right. go through permitting and the reroutes and all this stuff. And so, um, if you're looking for a job, this would be a great spot to start to track down. Um, who the different players are in this. Now, from a company standpoint, um, you know, we know that Texas Midstream Logistics is kind of the leader on this. Um, but as far as um, you know, who all they're using for the service providers, I wasn't able to get my hands on that information just yet. I saw that Iron Ironwood Midstream and uh, Castleton, Castleton Commodities uh, International are both uh, partners on this project with uh with uh Techstar. And so anyways, this project's going to go from the Permian um down to Corpus and it's going to bring out 443,000 barrels a day from the uh, Permian crude oil and another 150,000 barrels from the Eagleford for a total of 590,000 barrels per day um into wow. Corpus. And you know, one of the things I've noticed here over the past couple of years in Texas is that you're starting to see Corpus rise as a player in um where where pipelines are going to. Um traditionally you think, you know, kind of the, the Galveston Houston area, but now you're starting to see that uh, that corpus is really taken off, and so again for the audience members who are you know maybe independent looking for a job, there's going to be some jobs out in West Texas for um, I think the same that the in service date was like twenty uh, twenty nineteen, yeah. Uh, That's the, what I yeah, yeah, operational the, by first quarter, the first of quarter twenty nineteen, which means this thing's going to be going pretty quick. I mean, you don't put out you don't put uh, seven hundred something miles on the ground um, overnight. So, anyways, that was exciting to hear, and you know, it means a lot of a lot of a lot of more barrels will be coming on the market, and they're, they're going to be exported. That's the other thing to take away from this. A lot of these barrels are going to be be sold on the open market internationally, and so that's a good sign too. And you said uh, you, you don't have a definite company for the survey and that's providing uh, surveys for this huge job. 
No, I don't know who's doing it. I did see that Ironwood has an engineering and operations in Dallas, but I don't know how much that breaks down into you know survey, permitting, right away, engineer. Uh, you know, if they're doing all the engineering or some of it. So, not right. really sure with all the players. I just saw the article, like you said, it's uh it's uh, pretty hot stuff. And so, um, obviously, it's been going on for a little bit because you know they bought ten percent of the right away uh, at least. It says so. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, wasn't able to find out much more of those details, but. As you know, we just we just kind of stumbled across this before the show uh, broke today. So right, right, yeah, this new stuff, man. Um, all right, well, uh, moving on to uh, the next article with Forbes, we have uh, an article from David Blackman out of the oil and gas situation. Protesters moving to Texas. The Senate's not moving at all. This is from February twenty eighth, twenty seventeen. Um, David Blackman basically goes over um, some of the issues we've seen uh, across the nation. Uh, last couple of months, there's been lots of protests moving from North Dakota, the Keystone, uh, even some in West Texas. Uh, but he also notes some of the, the rising rig counts, 135 new active drilling rig counts in the last two months. Uh, Ryan, what do you think about the, the direction that the industry is moving in right now? Well, I think that you know, there's a lot of optimism, obviously, and David's a very smart guy. I, um, I interviewed him the other day for the Global Energy Leaders podcast. That'll be coming out, I think, uh, end of the March or something, maybe early April. I don't think we've got a firm date set yet. But, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's a very smart guy. I enjoyed talking with him, and so uh, he's definitely got his finger on the pulse. And I, I think that, you know, we look at the first quarter, the second quarter, I've, obviously we're seeing a lot of optimism in the market and things are picking up. Uh, the real question for me is going to be what happens with OPEC because um, – you know, we have our uh, we have our U.S. producers who are kind of getting geared up, and they're they're starting to launch. As you see, we'll talk about later with the rig counts. You know, there's more more and more um, oil coming on the market, and so will OPEC you know keep their freeze in place? And there's already rumblings that you know some of that's not really happening like it's supposed to be, and so ultimately you know it's, it's supply and demand. And so when when June rolls around and the OPEC freeze is supposed to be lifted, uh, will it you know what what will happen there? And so. I do think you know what he points out in this article is you know for the first couple of months you're going to see increased rigs and increased activity and I think that's spot on. I think if you're looking for a, uh, to get in the market now, it's the time. Don't don't try to don't try to wait and get in in right. June or July because we don't really know what's going to happen then. But yeah, these first these next few months, it, I feel I feel weird because we're in March already. You know, it feels weird to say uh, the first few months of the year. Because uh, you know we, we've we're already passed that, and that's that's, that's, right. that's, that's weird to kind of think about that. But we are we're in March, and so uh, yeah, I think the I think the price is going to be fine. And one thing that that David points out, I believe in this article, and this is going to be you know um, one of the things that you see when you look at oil uh, or gas, it doesn't matter, is they talk about the break even price. And when oil first first started falling a few years ago, I don't remember the exact number. It was sixty five, seventy five, or whatever. And now I read an article the other day said it's thirty five. And he points out in the article, just kind of in passing that, you know, as the price gets more stable and as more projects come online, what you're going to see is those day rates and those service company rates are going to go up, which then makes the break even point, you know, it's going to shift. And so we're always want to watch that and see, okay, where's the break even point today? Obviously, the labor market. There's a lot of factors that go into that. And then as the the market and the economy gets stronger, that break even point is going to is going to is going to fluctuate. And just like when the right. when the price falls. And so as the market gets stronger and as more projects come online. Service companies are going to say, "Hey, we got to hire more people. Our rates have got to go up. Therefore, we got to we got to charge the uh, the oil company or the gas company more money, and therefore, you know, the profitability goes down. And so, it's going to be. It's kind of. I, th- I think I see a lot of optimism in the market, but I'm a little bit more reserved. I want to see what happens uh, by June or July before I'm really safe to say, okay, this is. I'm, I'm comfortable with a long term steady market. And I want to be clear that 
as oil and gas professionals, we want a steady market. We don't want uh, volatility, volatility where we get up to 100 and it drops down to 30. That's no good for right. anyone. So I'd right. love to see it 50 to 60. I'm just not quite sure if that's what's going to happen until there's a few more things that we can watch play out over the next three to four months. Right. You mentioned that 50 to 60 mark. Uh, David, he predicts that if uh, if it stays at least $50 a barrel, that drilling is going to continue to explode around the nation. Um, but he also mentions OPEC as well. And uh, just, just wondering, do we see OPEC uh, possibly bringing those prices back under 50 in the next few months? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, uh, if you look at some of the storage numbers and what's going on there, um, you know, it's not like we're, we're on an oil shortage yet, obviously, because oil's at 50. And so if OPEC decides to ramp up their drilling, um, then, you know, and that's the thing that we got to think about is OPEC is they're not capitalists like, you know, American companies are. So American companies are out there. They're, you know, they're, they're individual private invested companies or publicly traded companies, and they're out there trying to make a dollar however they, you know, however they think is best. And OPEC's ran by, you know, government agencies, state-owned agencies. And so there's two different, completely different business models in play there. They're both trying to sell barrel oil, but how they, um, you know, one's the government running it, and one's a multitude of private, um, you know, uh, private uh, entrepreneurs or you know CEOs and, and stockholders and all this stuff that they're trying to run it. And so we, we kind of pit OPEC versus the U.S. And I think that for the U.S. producers, what they have to do is watch OPEC and react. And sometimes um, we've been historically, you know, when the price fell a couple of years ago, we outdrilled OPEC, and so. Um, I think for us now, uh, on the U.S. side of things, we have to be watching OPEC and to see what they're going to do and then be prepared to adjust to it. And that means sometimes that we have to cut our drilling. Otherwise, we can damage the market more uh, in the long term than if we kind of try to drill through it. And last time, we saw a lot of companies who had a lot of cash that they needed to make up, that you know, a lot of debt that they need to make that they made payments on. And so they're trying to cash checks, and so they keep drilling and drilling and drilling, and then the price just keeps going down and down and down. So, again, I think it's really going to be dependent on what happens um, – I think we're kind of through the phase where a lot of companies that are going to be going high octane, high uh, quick quick drilling programs, they're kind of out of the market. Um, how many of those are out? We don't really know, but I think enough are out so that you have companies who are uh, dedicated to longer drilling programs, and so they're not necessarily having to make a quick turnover um, like we saw, you know, two, three, four years ago. And so I think that's kind of stabilized the market out some, but again, I think it's a little early to tell. Well, uh, there, there's two two things uh, that David mentions here. I wanna I wanted to point out. Um, number one, toward the end of his article, he mentions uh, the Donald Trump's presidency, some of the things and actions he's taking to, uh, I guess, improve the regulations uh, surrounding the oil and gas industry. And um, just just to mention a couple, uh, he directed the Army Corps of Engineers to expedite the completion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. We saw that all over the news. Uh, directing the State Department to expedite the cross-border permitting of the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, there's several other things that he mentions, but uh, one of the things just wanted to how how much is the Trump presidency affecting the oil and gas industry? Is it just a coincidence that you know it's been two years, the supply is starting to go down, so more drilling is taking place, and it just so happens that Trump became president during that time, or do you think uh, it's a cause and effect that Trump is actually helping improve the the industry with some of these deregulations and uh, these executive orders. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination. I think you know Trump 
gets credit in the standpoint that oil and gas people generally get excited about Republicans. And so from that standpoint, if it had been Trump or uh, Cruz or, or whomever that it would have been a Republican nominee that would have won the presidency, just that would have given them a slight bump in, uh, in optimism right. for the economy. So from that standpoint, I think you kind of look at Trump and say, okay, it's not Trump per se. It's just you know the Republican entity um, you know usually goes with oil and gas, and so you know that's going to be that's going to be an optimism. Now, as far as executive orders, and I think that there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of stuff that the Obama administration did, and um, you know if you look at like the uh, the Waters to the United States Act and these various things that they've done, they were going to hinder the oil and gas uh, market for a long term with environmental regulations. And so um, it's not that he's ending environmental regulations over the oil and gas sector; it's just that there's some that were going to be just so stringent that ultimately the end consumer would have been hurt. So we've been paying, you know, six, seven, eight dollars gas because it would cost the gas companies, uh, oil and gas companies, more and more and more to drill and produce this product. Right. Um, but on the flip side, I think we want to be careful is that with these executive orders, no matter who the president is, is saying that we want the president to use executive orders to get things done because ultimately um, be careful what you wish for because that can be used against you just like it was with the Obama administration to stop you. Trump is now using it to help you. And so I think that's a greater political discussion that uh, we need to have you know, is what what are the roles of executive orders and when should they actually be used and when should they not be used? But so far, you know, so far he hasn't done anything to really hurt the industry. I'm interested to see how the response is going to be with his latest stuff about buying. Uh, I think it was a State of Union he mentioned um, that you know for the Keystone or the Dakota Access or, or maybe both that those projects can go forward as long as the steel was bought in the U.S. And so I'm curious to see if that kind of mentality is tied up with a lot of his uh, policies and can that help or hurt the oil and gas industry. And it's, I think that's too early to tell because, you know, the oil and gas, we want to we trade that globally. We want, you know, we want imports coming in, we want exports going out. Um, and so I'm curious to see if that meant, you know, what's going on with that part of the agenda. And it's too early to really tell, I think. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely with the uh, those executive orders, we see how easily they can be undone. So, uh, you know, you get all this money invested in oil and gas, and you know, if a Democratic president comes in and issues different executive orders, it could be just you know, a revolving door. Um, anyway, uh, I wanted to uh, go ahead and move on to the next article with uh, Waco Trio. This is Todd Staples. Um, before we do that, though, I had uh, a fun fact from history I wanted to, to mention. According to the American Oil and Gas Historical Society, the first pipeline was put in August 27, 1859, near Titusville, Pennsylvania. Uh, this was done by Seneca Oil Company of Connecticut. I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, a group of scientists uh, hired some investors, um, for, or investors hired scientists four years earlier to uh, study sources of kerosene and they found that pipeline would be a much better source than the coal that they were using. I thought that was pretty interesting, Ryan. What do you think about that? Yeah. You know, and if you go read uh, Morgan Downey's oil one Oh one, he talks about some of the stuff that was going on up in Pennsylvania during that time and you know, how they were, you know, drilled for oil and all of the technology that was there. And so it's a very interesting point of history when the oil and gas market is really kind of, you know, just beginning. And so, um, you know, uh, I love studying history from the standpoint of watching people who, um, say that this can't be done or this isn't possible, and then, you know, there it is 5, 10, 15 years later, all of a sudden, boom, yeah. it's, it's live and well. And that's the that's same true about us today. We just don't know what it is, obviously. But so, uh, no, it's a, a good, 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 interesting stuff. And, again, I would say Morgan Downey's Oil 101, if you're looking for a good read there, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, it doesn't talk about the pipeline stuff, I don't think, but it does talk about those, those guys in that area and what was going on. So definitely fascinating stuff if you like the history of oil and gas. 
Yeah, well, it's just just brilliant innovations that you see just crop up, you know, every few years, you know, maybe once once or twice a decade, just brilliant innovations that uh, that you see you know, that people come up with. It's fascinating, really. All right. Um, third article. This is uh, Waco Trib. Todd Staples. He's a guest columnist, like I mentioned, at Waco Trib. His article, Oil Gas Industry Still Energizing State, U.S. Ec- Economies, Households. This is uh, from Tuesday. February 28th, 2017. Uh, basic gist of the article is Texas has been the number one state for the oil and gas production in the country for you know quite a while. Uh, and he points out that even in a down uh, downturn last year, the state still brought in $9.4 billion uh, in state and local taxes. It's just from oil and gas. That's six times more than the next leading uh, business sector as far as money being brought into the state. So Oil and gas is a huge staple of you know the financial uh, stability of, of the state of Texas. Um, Ryan, he, he mentions uh, something very interesting uh, toward the end of his article. He, he goes on to point out that pipelines are the safest, cleanest ways to transport oil and gas. And with all of these uh, environmentalist protesters with the Keystone and North Dakota, uh, Ryan, why, why do people – why, why are they so resistant to these, uh, I mean, what, what would seem to be the safest means of transport, these infrastructures and pipelines? Why are people so resistant to this? Well, I think, and you know, one thing we didn't talk about in uh, David's article is that there's some of these protesters are moving to Texas now. And um, I, th- I think there's a lot of things that go, goes on with these people when you look at them is, first off, they're looking to identify with a community, right? And so... Um, you, know, you can look at tribal mentality amongst different human groups, and um, these people, I think, for the most part, I, I like to separate them into two groups. You have the groups that um, that actually care about the environment, and they're completely misguided in how they think about it. But they, 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 in their core, they think that they really care about the environment. And then you have the people who make money off of those people, um, and so um, that's going to be more of your politicians, your Al Gore's, those types of people who understand what's really going on, but they don't care. They're trying to make a buck. And so we're talk- we're not talking about the Al Gore's of the world. We're talking about the people who are actually on the ground, who are in North Dakota and doing this stuff. And I, I think if you if you just simply ask them, you know, the, the ones who've left North Dakota now are in West Texas, how did you get here? Um, did you walk? Did you ride a bike? You know, and no matter how they got there, oil and gas was involved with that process. From the you know, <laughs> right. there's, from right. the either either it was directly in the car, um, you know, that they were driving, or the products that they used to get from A to B was composed of some kind of oil and gas, you know, uh, a subsidiary. And so, I, I would, I, and so then I would say, okay, well, well, what is an acceptable amount, and how do you determine that, and you know, which which one is what's the problem here? And so I don't think. I think that they kind of get they get sold on this idea of hey we want to we want to save the environment and the oil and gas companies don't and, and and so then the logic is thrown out and so when you sit back you say okay if you want the safest thing for the environment then you want a pipeline now the problem is as we see some of these people is they're saying no pipelines no fracking no oil and gas and you go well I, I, you you don't want to live out in North Dakota or at least I don't want to live out in North Dakota um, during the winter without oil and gas to heat my house. Uh, you know, exactly. uh, solar and wind are making great strides, but they're not there yet, and they're not going to be there for a while. So, I want to have, have a nice, warm house to come to. I've got children and a wife, and I want you know, I want to have a nice, warm house to come to, and that's the most, that's the best way to do that right now. Um, and so, I, I think when you when you really get into it, I think that I think it's kind of a, a weird for me, at least a weird way to look at it is I think that a lot of these people have really good what they think are motives, and I think 
the, the on the flip side though they haven't really consistently worked out the logic for what they're doing and why it's not really a logical thing for them to do is just to protest only gas pipelines um especially when there's no alternative if it, it, i think the argument's different if wind and um you know um, solar and all these other renewables were a viable cheap solution today if those were electric cars and all this stuff if those were viable cheap solutions today I, I, I'm, I'm agnostic on which source of energy we use. I want to be the cheapest, and I do want to be the cleanest, but there's a caveat there. Um, I want to work to protect me from the environment. And that's one thing that you know, I think gets lost in the argument is that the environment itself is harmful to us. You don't, if you stay out in the sun every day and you don't put suntan lotion on, what happens to you, Josh? You, don't have to be, you get sunburn or skin cancer. Yeah, you get sunburn or skin cancer. We need protection from the environment. And so it's kind of a myth to think that the environment is here to protect us and to hold us. I mean, obviously, on some level, that's true. Um, but as far as living out in the wild, that that's that's a proposition that I'm not sure a lot of people are really game for. I'm not game for it, I know. I like having that AC when it's 100 degrees in Texas heat. And so, you know, we need to be protected from the environment. The, the environment doesn't need protection from us nearly as much as we need protection from it. And then the other thing I would say is that um, anytime we put the environment over human life, and now it's hard to make that argument here in the States because we have so much abundance of wealth and so much energy. We don't have rolling blackouts. But if you go to Africa, and I, it's, it's funny, I didn't think about this, so I just said it, but, you know, I'm leaving for Africa tomorrow. And uh, one of the things that you see in Africa is – massive amounts of people. And I think this article even mentions that there's uh, 1.2 billion people, according to the International Energy Agency, that do not have access to electricity across the globe. 1.2 billion people. Okay, now, is oil and gas the solution for all 1.2 billion? No. But those 1.2 billion, they won't and need access to heating and cooling and all the things that get that, 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 that oil and gas and fossil fuels in general give us. Uh, finally, I would say that if you go to a spot that doesn't have uh, electricity, then that means that babies that are born are more likely to die because they don't have access to immediate care that they need. Um, you know, we both have uh, three kids, Josh, and we've been through that process, and so we know what it's like. You know, you have the baby, and they go and they put it in the little, the little warmer, and they have all this stuff. But there is a whole host of things that are there to help save the baby's life if something were to go bad. If you don't have electricity, you don't have that potential. And so I, I think that you want to start there and start asking those kind of questions. And again, I don't, I don't think that these people in their mind realize that the contradictory, uh, the, the, the contradiction in their thoughts, I just think that they haven't really thought it out. And so I, I'm open, I would love for these conversations to happen with them more on a more regular basis without having to get you know, hostile and volatile and, you know, and just visceral in these conversations. Um, but I haven't seen that, and I'm hoping that there's more avenues that are opened up especially as more renewables come online, because as more renewables come online, you know, oil and gas won't be as prevalent, but so then maybe we can start to have a real discussion about what is the role of oil and gas in the long term of the world's economy. Yeah, I'm absolutely agree. And, and kind of tagging on that, uh, finally on this article, he, he, he talks about people in new England, uh, for example, that, uh, they pay the highest electricity rates because they don't have a developed in- infrastructure pipelines. And uh, in just two years, 2014, 2015, the residents paid over $7 billion more than the neighboring regions that had a more developed infrastructure of pipelines. So it's not only just a matter of getting energy to people, but making it affordable where uh, the the bills in, in that area are so much higher that it puts a lot of stress and strain on families. Um, so it, it's... 
I think it's I think it's perfect. You know, the in, in New England the environment, I mean, the snow and and the cold um, that we need protection from that. Uh, it doesn't need protection from us. We need protection from from that. Right. Uh, and, and, right. And, and one more thing, even if you said that, even if you said that today, and and this is a moral case of fossil fuels. One of the things that I enjoy about Alex Epstein's book is is he said something along the lines of this. I'm gonna get it wrong, so go buy the book and read it. But essentially, he said something is okay if we knew for a fact that the damage that had been done was irreversible to the environment and it was going to end in you know 10 20 30 years well what do you do then and so what do you do then well the only thing that you should do is how do we protect human life over that period of time now alex wasn't saying and i'm not saying that you should just you know go full bore and destroy the environment but the point is is that we we have to figure out how do we preserve humans before we preserve the environment. And then once we understand that, then we can begin to figure out how the environment plays into that role. Um, but human flourishing has to be the number one priority. And then once we understand that, then we figure out, okay, how do we protect the environment and allow humans to flourish? But humans can't really flourish if there's not you know, heating and cooling and all the stuff that energy provides. And finally, when, the, when hurricanes happen or earthquakes happen, which happened before oil and gas was around, you know, it's nice to have access to power, access to gasoline, access to electricity and all this stuff to go and help clean up those things because right. they're going to happen regardless of fossil fuel use. And so those are just some of the things that I think people should sit back and consider. Um, and again, uh, moral case for fossil fuels, I'll just kind of plug that. Uh, Alex Epstein, great book, and it was very helpful for me to kind of categorize, you know, how to think about some of this stuff. All right. That's great. Uh, all right, moving on to the final article, Ron. I think we are getting close to running out of time, so we may have to kind of run over this one pretty quickly. Uh, this is uh, the Houston Chronicle. Um, this is Jordan Bloom, and his uh, his article is titled, Houston Company Goes Big on Permian Sand to Fuel West Texas Oil Activity. Uh, this was posted February 24th, 2017. Uh, overall, uh Basically, he talks about a Houston-based company called High Crush Partners. They agreed to purchase the Permian Sand Company for $275 million. Ryan, what do you know about uh, this sand companies and the fracking that's involved with this? Do you know much about that? Yeah, well, I think that the, the, the big takeaway, Josh, is, is that if you're in oil and gas, you have to look at how to be opportunistic. And the big takeaway from this article, if you read it, is, I mean, if you're in the sand business, then you should be really excited. But the other thing that he says is that the amount of sand, this is uh, from the article, the amount of sand injected into each well has doubled in the last five years, up to mm. 8 million pounds, as well as oil continuously drilled deep. Uh, uh, he goes on to talk about, some, about why. But the, uh, the last five years, so let's think about that. What's happened over the last five years? Well, doubled. it's doubled, but the, what happens to the rig count? The rig count has dropped. The price has dropped, and yet the sand has been injected at doubled. And the reason is is that we're, we're drilling deeper and longer horizontal offshoots. Okay, so that means that there is opportunities and downturns. And now as the market comes back up, there's opportunities as well, obviously. And so I think that the takeaway, I, when I read this article, the first thing was is, man, I wish I would have thought about the implications of drilling longer horizontal offshoots. You know, that's kind of, that was my, that was my first, my, my first thought is, is golly, I should have just kind of thought about that for just a few minutes and invested in sand. Um, obviously I didn't. So I would think that, that, and this is one of the things with this show and, you know, the other stuff that we're kind of working on, Josh, is that, we want to sit back and promote how do you think about how to make money in energy, in oil and gas at all times, because there's usually, at least unless the market's completely dead, a way to make money. And so if you've been in the sand business for the past couple of years, well, you've been seeing you know some good results, and you're going to see really good results this year as you know 
the rigs the rigs you know um, are, are doubling and going out and, and, and moving on so so on and so forth and so th- that was the big takeaway for me is um i'm not i'm not i'm not want to break get into the, the the fracturing stuff that's really probably better for sure for someone else to do but just sitting there as a businessman going man I need to step back, and for the vendors and suppliers out there, we we all need to step back and say, okay, where are the pinch points at in the industry, and how can we capitalize on that? Because there's opportunities because these guys just put a lot of money into buying sand, you know. Right. And so they just they just knocked it out of the park. It looks like uh, it looks like it was a great savvy business move for sure. Well, uh, well, Ryan, I think uh, I think that's it for this article. Uh, well, at the end of it, he, he goes over some rig counts, but uh, conveniently, that's our segue into the rig count, uh, kind of wrapping things up. Uh, the rig count, as of this morning, was uh, we've added three rigs in the last week. We're up 252 from this time last year. We have a total of 754. Um, out of that 754, 602 of those are primarily drilling for oil. Um, 306, that's over half of those are coming from the Permian. We have five from the Barnett, 12, uh, from the Granite Walsh, 64 from the Eagleford. Um, and if we break those down in Texas, 383 of the 386 are drilling for oil. I'm sorry, that's 353 are oil and 33 are gas. Anything yeah. you want to? Yeah, just, just just crazy numbers there, and just just so the audience, uh, I, I caught you, but make sure the audience caught you right. It's half of the oil rigs are in the Permian, but forty percent overall of all the rigs are in the Permian, and yes. so and so that's just just crazy numbers there. Uh, that for, that the Permian Basin is the king. Forty um, percent of all the rigs in the U.S. are are there. So um, obviously the Eagle Force is catching some wind, but uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say thirty two last year at this time. Eagle Force is at thirty two or at sixty four this year, so looks good in the in the Eagle Force. No, absolutely. So exciting stuff in Texas. If you're in Texas, oil and gas, we didn't talk much about gas, and that's because the price is a little low right now. Um, we're going to try to touch on that, and just just to have a, a note for the listeners. I mentioned earlier I'm leaving for South Africa and Namibia tomorrow, and I get back next Friday. And so if I get back and I'm not just completely wiped out, Josh and I will get another episode out to you. And if not, it'll be the following Friday. So we're hoping to get episode two out a week from today, the 10th. Um, but no promises. Depends on you know planes and all that kind of stuff. That's out of my control. But yeah, good information, Josh. Uh, you know a lot of, a lot of good stuff here in Texas. And guys, give some feedback. I will link to Global Energy Media contact page where you can reach Josh and myself there. And uh, you know where do we mess up? What do we miss? Or what do you want to hear from us? Because uh, it's our first episode, so it's probably a little rocky and not as smooth as it needs to be. But we're going to we're going to work it out and get it figured out. And uh, keep trying to bring you guys better content. And we want to hear from you. Obviously, what do you want to hear? And uh, you know, how can we service you with this Texas oil and gas podcast? And so, uh, Josh enjoyed it, man. And, uh, I guess I'll talk to you when I get back from Africa. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Have a safe trip. Don't, uh, don't, don't get too tired over there, man. That's a, that's a heck of a flight. What is it? 15 hours in 20 minutes. Don't short me 15 hours and 20 minutes to 15 hours and 20. yeah, 15 no, hours right, and 20 man. minutes from Atlanta to Johannesburg, South Africa. And then, yeah, I, it's it's pretty brutal. I fly from DFW to Atlanta and Atlanta to Johannesburg, and then I get off after that fifteen hour twenty minute flight. I sit in Johannesburg Airport for two hours, and then I fly to Namibia, Namibia that night. And so it's just back to back to back. Um, so that Monday, I got some meeting with some uh, officials in Namibia. It's going to be kind of you know two two three cup of coffee day, you know, to kind of get that one started. Right. So um, well, man, I'm excited to hear from it, man. I hope uh, hope you land some serious deals over there and have have a safe trip, man. Okay, guys, and until next time, keep climbing.